Welcome to the Why It Depends podcast, where we explore anatomical and physiological mechanisms and nuances behind different approaches in the fitness and therapy industries. Today's episode is the first of a series on anatomical regions. So what Stefan and I are going to be doing is we're going to be picking regions and just talking about the structure, why we think it's structured that way, uh, what is that structure best at doing and why do we think that, how that structure affects structures above and below. Um, as well as the physiology. How does that, the anatomy in that region affect the physiology in that region? So today we're talking about the lumbopelvic region. We take a pretty deep dive. We hope you guys um, enjoy this uh, uh, this series. Um, If there's anything you feel like we missed, if there's anything you'd love to add, please don't hesitate to send us a message. We'd love to learn more. Uh, We hope you enjoy the episode. Stefan, how are you doing? Not too bad, sir. How are you? I'm great. I'm good. I'm I'm excited we're doing this again. It's been a a little bit of time. It has been. Mm Mm-hmm. Ready, ready for some action. Yes, sir. Fun facts and health hacks with Stefan and Zach. Do you want to do your health hack or uh, your fun yeah. fact first? Yeah, fun facts. Um, so this one, I'm sure a lot of people have possibly heard, but maybe maybe not, um, is the uh, an interesting piece of anatomically is the, uh, the consistency of the meniscus. So we learned um, about the, the meniscus being a load bearing and, and, uh, structural, you know, uh, piece to the, the knee joint, but the consistency of the meniscus in, uh, within the food environment of the, of the synovial uh, capsule is more similar to that of like an, a hard boiled egg white. So it's not necessarily something that's actually able to bear a lot of load before it ends up sort of splitting or, or going under too much, uh, too much pressure and, and, uh, be, becoming injured. So, it's something that, that is, you know, an, an interesting thing to note, um, you know, as you learn about it in, in dissection courses and things like that, they're, the meniscus and, and the cartilaginous structures of the body are all pretty rigid and, and hard. Um, but in, in fact, like in, in, uh, in a live person, they're, they're kind of soft and, and uh, pliable, which is kind of interesting when, when you think about what is it for and how does it function and all that sort of stuff. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think it's, it's more, is it because it's such a vacuum that it doesn't need to be so rigid to still create that kind of uh, counterforce and re- reduction of friction or. I, I think of it as, and I don't know this for sure at, by any means, I haven't even really like done any sort of research on it, but just thinking about things. So one of the principles that we talk about in osteopathy is fluid being non-compressible. So if you think about the, the, the synovial capsule of the, or the capsule of the synovial joint being, you know, pretty, pretty uh, tightly woven so that no fluid can really escape. Um, when pressure is applied, the, um, the, the fluid within that joint capsule kind of create, puts outward pressure on the, on the synovial joint itself or on the, the joint capsule itself. Um, and then kind of rebounds in back, you know, inwards and upwards and downwards to, to repel the, the surfaces of the bones from each other. And from, you know, likewise from the menisci, um, from the, the cartilaginous, uh, ends of the, of the femur. Um, so that's, that's something that I always think about, like, like the cartil, um, the, uh, meniscus is, is kind of like a porous, uh, structure as well. So it's completely filled with fluid, much like a sponge would be. So if you can picture a sponge, you know, when you, when you squeeze a sponge, all the water leaves, but if the water's not able to leave because of the capsule uh, is, you know, maintaining all the fluid within it, then it doesn't really go anywhere. And all of a sudden the, the, that 
structure of a sponge becomes pretty stable because it's so full of fluid, which is we know is non-compressible. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. That's kind of how I how I picture it or what I would imagine. I don't know by any sort of stretch of fact, but that's super cool. Um, I actually just yeah. uh, was recently at, was asked the question about you know why do we do a thermal warm up? Is called or some sort of something that's going to increase the heart rate before um, before exercise. And usually mm-hmm. the answer you give, oh, it increases blood flow, it increases body temperature, uh, body temperature, it's going to reduce uh, uh, risk of injury. But one thing that was brought to my attention that somebody else had said is the idea behind the pumping of the joint is going to bring more synovial fluid into the joint. Mm-hmm. So it's actually like just, again, doing like a small walk in the morning is a great thing to help um, increase that fluid that you're talking about to yeah. better allow for those joints to articulate. Yeah, to operate for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Uh, so my fun or health hack is, uh, another one that has to do with kind of cold thermogenesis. So again, I was listening to this Andrew Huberman podcast, um, with the, make sure I get the doctor's name, Dr. Craig Heller. And I believe he's from Stanford. Um, but yeah, Stanford university, and he's been doing research on just how do we can better regulate body temperature and, and how that can affect performance. So generally, like when you, whenever you watched, uh, let's say like a boxing match or UFC fight, and you'll see them put the ice packs on the back of the head, to try and cool the body down yeah. on the back of the neck or whatever, because they thought that, you know, that's where the carotid arteries are and, 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 uh, the, the jugular veins, lots of blood's going through there so we can cool down the blood, but that's mm-hmm. actually counterintuitive. Um, so they, he, he's found that, so we have these, uh, arterial venous anastomoses in our hands, um, in our feet and uh, the top of our head. And it's essentially just, uh, places where there's no capillaries in between the, the arterial blood goes right into the venous blood. Mm-hmm. And they found that if you can cool those areas off, cause when we think about exercise, uh, we're breaking down, we're, we're utilizing energy. We're breaking down mm-hmm. lots of things and then we're producing heat. So heat can be a limiting factor in our ability to do work the body gets too hot and it changes the, the pH and all those things we've talked about in the past. It can affect how the muscles can function. Um, so what they found is that if you cool the hands in between exercise, so the, the, there's a couple of papers I'll put in, but um, they, they've done like dip studies, bench press studies and pull-ups and all, all these different kind of exercises where they'll get the, the athlete to do the exercise a few, a few sets, and then they'll cool the hands in between a, a few other sets. And they'll see this massive change in the ability for them to do uh, more volume. That's wild. So, so, so just by chilling the hands all of a sudden, then they're able to do like the fatigue kind of leaves in, in a sense, or, or they're able to just get, get more reps in. Yeah. So it's just like a better uh, area for us to offload heat or, or yeah. take in heat. Um, and they're actually using it. They're starting to use it now too. If somebody uh, in the hospital comes in with hypothermia um, and, and they're super cold and uh, what they would do, is just wrap them in blankets and try and heat them up or whatever. Um, but, yeah. but rather than heating up the core uh, using blankets, you're, it's, you're actually, uh, you can heat somebody up faster by heating up their hands and their feet. Cause it's just, huh. they, they can absorb more heat from those areas or the, the top of the forehead. That's pretty neat. Oh, it's super cool. Yeah, that is super cool. Well, I was actually, I got a bit of a chill on yesterday. I was working outside and, and that was the first thing I did just instinctively. It was just came in and like, as soon as I put my hands in some warm water, it was like, Ooh, mm-hmm. I'm going to wait a little bit. And like, this is nice, you know, mm-hmm. toast up a little. And there's a, a little trick to it as well, because so people have heard this research and they've tried to do it on their own. So they're obviously developing some sort of product with that, that has like uh, uh, gloves or whatever. I think it's called cool mitts, but right. people have just been grabbing ice packs and throwing it on their hands. 
mm-hmm. between sets and stuff, which yeah. can actually be detrimental again. So if, if it's too cold, you create vasoconstriction of those arterial ven- venous anastomoses, and then it right. decreases your ability to offload heat even more. So there's a very specific temperature that they have figured that is the best for us to, uh, to get the most amount of heat kind of to get rid of the most amount of heat. Yeah. Without having to, uh, vasoconstrict the areas. That's kind of neat. Super cool. That's super interesting. So you got to get the gloves. You got to buy the gloves. Yeah. Or you mess around (laughs) with it. Like I've been trying to do a little bit of it in between exercise. Like, like you said, just like cold water. Uh, But then my hands get wet and it's harder to hold the weights and the the bar and stuff. So I'll be trying to mess around with, you got to chalk up again. Yeah. Chalk up. Exactly. Sweet. Oh, awesome. Sweet. That's so, yeah, super so, cool. Yeah, it is. It's, it's wild. The, the, the little kind of finicky things that they're finding through the, the physiology and through the anatomy that they're able yeah. to kind of mess around with to in, improve performance. Yeah. So Stefan and I have been uh, just trying to talk and uh, think of different ways we could take this podcast and that would be a good learning experience for us and for the listeners as well. Um, and I was reading uh, Mr. Robert Johnson's Osteopathic Principles Applied Mechanics and Treatment book, the, the blue book for anybody here who goes to the Canadian Academy of Osteopathy, you know it. Um, for anybody who don't uh, doesn't go to the school, you might want to pick it up. It's an awesome book at describing mechanics, both uh, all globally, uh, locally and focally, and how those apply to each other as well. Um, so yeah, go pick it up. You might want to join the school after you read it. Um, but, um, so yeah, there's a section in there where he talks about how you can, uh, better understand anatomy by just asking some relatively simple questions, but that can go into deeper conversation. So some of these questions are, why is that structure structured that way? What is that structure best at doing and why, how does this structure support and abate motion and or load traveling through it? How could that influence the structures above and below? Why does the primary motion of structures change in that way? So essentially just having a deep conversation on one region of the body to see how the anatomy of that region affects anatomy of regions above and below, as well as how does that anatomy affect the physiology uh, around it. So the region that we picked today is going to be the lumbopelvic region. So just some brief anatomy. Uh, So lumbopelvic region, we got five lumbar vertebrae. We have two anonymous, and then we have the, the sacrum kind of shoveled in between those two anonymous. So the lumbar vertebrae, they're larger than the vertebrae above, which means they handle more load because they're at the bottom, they're at the base, as well as they're, uh, so they have three joints in between them. So we have intervertebral joints in between, which are the discs in between the bodies. And then we also have facet joints on the back. And what we can do is when we look at a joint, we can see kind of how it's formed and it'll give us an idea of how it functions. So those uh, facet joints in the back are orientated more in the sagittal plane, which means they move more through flexion and extension. If you look just above that, we have our thoracic spine, and especially at that uh, kind of um, thoracolumbar junction at T11, T12, they're very much in the coronal and transverse plane. So we have a lot of rotation and side bending happening above, and then into the lumbar spine, we have a lot of flexion and extension. Then we go down into the, the sacrum, which is kind of this uh, C-shaped, it's, it's called a, a kyphotic curve because the, um, the curve, uh, the concavity of the curve is the anterior. And then you have the anonymous and between uh, the anonymous and the, the sacrum, we have our SIJ joints, our sacroiliac joints, which are uh, uh, plain synovial joints and they travel. Uh, so the anonymous uh, rotate anteriorly and posteriorly physiologically, which means that's what they're supposed to do. Um, and that again is in the sagittal plane. And then if we look at kind of L5S1, the, the sacrum itself moves through counternutation and nutation, which is essentially just flexion and extension. So that again, this is primary motion in the sagittal plane. Um, and then we have a little bit of rotation side bending at L5S1, as well as uh, at the top around L1, L2. Um, 
Yeah. So the big differences that we see again is the plane of motion that, that this is traveling through as well as the size of these structures. The anonymous are quite large. The sacrum itself is five fused vertebrae. So it's a very large bone. And then the, the five lumbar vertebrae are quite large. So to me, this looks like a, um, a structure that's designed for stability and taking on load. Uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that, Stefan. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Like, I mean, like you said, you got to have stability somewhere. And, mm -hmm. and oftentimes the, like looking at the body, there are certain points uh, where there's, you know, main, uh, you need to have like a platform essentially of, of stability in mm -hmm. order to provide the opportunity for mobility above it um, or, or distal, uh, uh, distal from, from it. So you sort of have like prox proximal stability and distal uh, mobility. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, ha like having a stable platform essentially, uh, in, in through the lumbar spine allows for then, you know, you, you to rotate with, with confidence and, and, uh, with control essentially. Um, so the, the, um, uh, the sheer amount of not just load, um, as you get lower down into the, into the torso that is being borne by the lumbar spine, but also the amount of muscular force that those, those vertebrae are exerted. Um, so all the, you know, like the, the psoas muscles, transverse abdominis, the, the, um, uh, and like the, essentially the transition, the transition of force from the abdominal muscles and, and through the glutes and, and the fascia and the, you know, the lats, like all these muscles kind of invest down into lumbar spine, um, mm -hmm. either directly or, or, you know, indirectly through shared factual connection. So, mm -hmm. um, it's just one of those things that they, they need to have the, you know, the, the strong bulk, uh, in the bone themselves just to, to help bear all that all that force and and uh and and tension mm -hmm. um but yeah another big piece too is is like the the visceral organs like all the of the of the abdomen and pelvis um the, the less that they move the easier they're able to do their their job essentially independent of getting pulled left and right and up and down and all that sort of stuff they you know they do get pulled all, all those directions which help to a certain extent but you need to to control that, uh, in such a way. So as not to overdo it essentially, mm -hmm. um, with all the nervous plexuses as well within those, that, that space, you know, if, if all that had, you know, the same sort of motion of, of your shoulder blade, uh, or your shoulder joint, like it would just be having a tough time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, and I really like that word you use platform. Cause I was thinking, uh, so essentially, like you said, you have the thoracic spine rotation side bend. So mostly through the, uh, transverse plane. And then you have the uh, lumbar spine mostly traveling through the sagittal plane. So you have these perpendicular planes, which allows, which allows then for uh, a platform to create force from. So just like yeah. our feet mostly move through the sagittal plane and the, the actual ground itself is on the transverse plane. And because those forces are, those planes are perpendicular, it allows us to produce force off of something. That's interesting. So, yeah. yeah. So if yeah, our whole cool. body just rotated, there would be nothing to push off of. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes complete sense. That's interesting too, like that, that simple principle behind that, like between the grand reaction forces and the sagittal and mm -hmm. transverse. Yeah. That's, that's super wicked. But it's, it's weird to think about, uh, uh, it's almost like a table, I guess. Right. So you have the flat yeah. surface above of the transverse plane, and then you have these legs um, yeah. of the sagittal plane that, that then goes into our actual legs, right. That uh, generally work more so through the sagittal plane. And there is like some rotational ability at the higher end of the lumbar spine where it transitions from the thoracic spine and the lower end where it goes into the, uh, the sacrum, but it's quite minimal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when, yeah. 
when we're work, when I'm working with my athletes, um, what I'll notice is what well, one of the fundamental principles we try and teach them is what we just said is the lumbopelvic junction is kind of our place of stability that we mm-hmm. then can produce force from. Like one of uh, um, the trainers at the gym I work at, the analogy he uses would be um, if you were trying to shoot a canoe or a cannon out of a canoe, right? Shoot you need a cannon out of a canoe. Yeah, like that wouldn't work out very well, right? Because you, there's yeah, no yeah. seat of stability to for that force. Oh, that, I see. That, that ground reaction force off of, right? So the totally. cannon would just go right in the lake or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's an interesting point that you brought up as well as the the fact that all the uh, large majority of our viscera is in the front, and mm-hmm. um, we talk about in osteopathy as well that. Um, there needs to be the ability for motion to occur to allow for the fluid dynamics to change. So all these yeah. organs and, uh, and the fascia that covers them, are almost, it's almost like sponges that little bits of movement help them push and pull fluid into different areas and stuff uh, and yeah. move nutrients and waste around. Yeah. And there's even like the peritoneum, the visceral and parietal peritoneum, um, which is almost like a connective tissue uh, sac that um, if you picture like if you were to put your fist in a balloon, like that, uh, it creates a sack, like the balloon itself is a sack and it uh, overlaps all these organs and they connect through ligaments between each other. So there is some movement that they, they can do, but too much movement is going to be a problem. Yeah. Like I, w- I always see these videos on Instagram with these like gymnasts and stuff. We're doing these crazy contorted movements and can, can only imagine the kind of forces that are going through their digestive tract, their kidneys, their adrenal glands, their. Yeah, um, it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes those, you know, those gymnasts, it, because they're typically younger, it's not, uh, it's often when they're, you know, uh, once they finish their sport that they, their body starts to rebound and, and all sorts of problems start to crop up or, or they've created problems, physiological changes over such a long period of time that now it's kind of more or less with them for the rest of their life. And there there's instability issues or, or, you know, hypermobility. And, um, I think that that platform analogy too. Um, you could look at it globally, like we just talked about from the division of the lumbar spine through the thoracic spine, but you can even look at that kind of uh, locally at just the, the lumbar spine as well. Like you, yeah. like we said, there's a little bit of rotation side bending happening at the top, like T12, L1, maybe L1 on L2, then a little bit mm-hmm. of side bend rotation happening in L5, S1. And then in between you have L3, which the facets above and below are essentially almost just sagittal. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's the, the vertebrae that sits the most forward. So that's why it's a lower data curve because it's uh, sitting anteriorly. So again, we have these kind of transverse planes above and below, and then the sagittal plane in between that's creating the the base of the the higher motion areas above and below. And like uh, in Mr. Johnson's book, he talks about the bowstring effect and that creates this bowstring to help pump again, fluid, move organs, vascular structures. And when you, you look at, uh, like the motion of breathing and all that sort of stuff, you just have that, that bowstring effect or that lordotic curvature sort of start to, to flex and extend, which then does a whole bunch of stuff for all the venous, uh, the, the venous structures that, that run adjacent to the lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a neat effect and yeah. And then also of course, to the lymphatic, uh, vessels that, that run along as well. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, we, we, uh, with um, the fluid movement, we also have the respiratory diaphragm that comes in in the Tukura attached into the L1 to L3. And it has mm-hmm. so much motion capacity through the ribs and through the thoracic spine. But again, it needs some sort of point of stability to create force from. Yeah, to draw down. And yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, the uh, it, it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I always wonder about that, the, the effect of that, you know, one coming down lower than the other, is it create a bias for rotation or, or, or those sorts of things? And, or, is, you know, the, the fact that they 
attached down to L3 and, you know, what would that look like if it actually, if there was some sort of variance where it attached lower to L4, would your lower dot curve just be that much lower or, mm-hmm. you know, are the two, you know, how, how directly influencing are they on, on one another mm-hmm. um, functionally? Yeah. It's always uh, an interesting sort of consideration. That's a cool point. Again, that it's at that L3, that keystone of the middle yeah. of the curve that it attaches to, that's going to run more through that sagittal plane than uh, the other two. And uh, like you were saying with the fluid movement, the three major, um, when we talk about fluid movement, we could talk about nerves, arteries, veins, and lymphatics, but in terms of Mm -hmm. the arteries, veins, and lymphatics, you have the aorta, which is one of the biggest vessels in the body of the inferior vena cava, which again is one of the biggest vessels for the venous Mm -hmm. side. And then you have the, the uh, thoracic duct coming across around like L3 and L1 up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and then also to the lumbar veins, which, you know, feed into these zygos veins from higher up in the thoracic uh, spine like those all all have you know pretty low r- low rates of flow and need mo- need motion to to draw that flow along um maybe it's not right to say low low rates of flow i'm sure the rate is probably just fine but like com- relative to to the uh like the uh, arterial system of course it'd be a little bit different and that motion is you know then required to to draw draw that fluid through and up against gravity and yeah. from the musculoskeletal system too, I think it shows the, the idea that it's a really supportive structure from the, the size of the muscles that come into there. So you have yeah. the psoas, that's huge. The QL, which is a large side bender and extender. You have the diaphragm. Yeah. Iliacus doesn't attach directly to the lumbar spine, but into the lumbopelvic kind of area in the uh, yeah. ilium. You have the lats, right? There, there are still deep intrinsic muscles that'll do kind of fine motions, but a lot of those like muscles are so large producing force from uh, the coxfemoral joints into the knee into the ankle and stuff for us to produce force or from the arms. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And the, the whole, uh, I, I was, I was doing a little bit of review on, um, can't remember the guy's name. It's a very interesting long Eastern European name. Um, but he's, he was sort of one of the researchers that looked into the spinal spinal mechanics and, and the spinal engine and, uh, he did work with a with a person who, I believe it was congenital, but it may have been surgical. But but essentially didn't have any any legs. Like from the femurs, the femurs were gone. So he was this, this person was able to walk and ambulate, as you would you know expect of a, of anybody with legs. Um, but they they didn't have any femurs. Um, so he was just walking on his ischial tuberosities on his butt. Oh yeah. I've seen that uh, video. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. And and when you see then this snaking motion, you know, coming from the, the anonymous all the way up through the lumbar spine into, into like the, the primary pivot at uh, the dorsal lumbar junction, it, 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 you get to appreciate then that, that's that shift of stability to mobility a little bit more. Um, and, and, it breaks down more, more like focally to, you know, the left stabilizes here while they're grants mobility on the, the right, a little bit further up and then vice versa as he switches, you know, to bear weight on the other ischial tuberosity. And the video is quite amazing. We should try to link, uh, link yeah, the video. Throw that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it, it uh, it was something that sort of, um, I think was a challenge to a lot of the traditional, understanding of mechanics of being like, you know, primarily leg driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sort of shifted it to say, well, what if, what if you don't have legs, you know, the, the, the motion and the mechanics are still the same. So is it the legs that are doing it, or is that just a poor assumption because the majority of us all have legs? 
Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it perhaps coming from the spine, the lumbar spine, the erectors, like all these big muscle groups, like you said, that attach in into uh, into the the lumbar spine that then are able to transfer force into the thoracic and and create then rotation and all that the, those beautiful uh, beautiful mechanics that take place. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. And that's a perfect example of how the body can compensate around uh, issues like that. That that that's that would be something uh, would be you can't change. But let's say for example, yeah. if somebody has very poor mobility through the coxfemoral joints at the hip or through the knee or through the ankle, and maybe now yeah. the lumbar spine would have to take over some of those jobs as they move through similar planes of motion. Yeah, for sure. I was uh, I was actually just driving, stopped at a at a red light, and and noticed a woman walking her dog, and and her right hip had like no extension, like no, no extension past like zero degrees. So right when it, once her foot was under her hip, her left foot took, you know, took, uh, took the weight and, and she shifted and then had to swing that leg, that right leg forward again, because she just couldn't get her right leg behind her body. And interestingly, like what you said, you know, the, the forms of compensation, it, she wasn't extending the way that I would, you would expect to compensate for that. So her lumbar spine was just as rigid as her as her right hip was. Um, and, and so that sort of, that, that sort of idea of, you know, of compensation made me wonder which came first. Um, did she perhaps have wicked lumbar tension and stiffness and immobility, which then over time, um, limited her hip extension and thereby, you know, limited as well, her ability to create it, you know, compensatory extension, which then, required her to have a shorter shuffling gait or, you know, was it the other way around? Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah. Yeah. Anyways, there's so many questions with it, but it's, yeah, it's, you can't really be like, excuse me, ma'am. Can you, can you <laughs> I'd like to do a quick assessment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so funny. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I'd like a similar example of a, a gentleman um, who I've been training and um, he has like the classic sciatica uh, diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see what, while he's training, if you look at his two limbs, um, the right limb, you can see the fluid start to build up. So like his veins start to pop so much more on this right side where he's getting the sciatic pain. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, I can't see any issues in the ankle mobility, the knee mobility, uh, the coxifer mobility is okay passively, but actively he creates a lot of his motion from his lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the up, up in the DL and doesn't use his coxifemoral joints, uh, very much actively, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of, uh, motion restriction in through the, the lumbar spine. And when we talk about how, so the lumbar spine, the nerves that come out of the lumbar spine are generally for the lower pelvic viscera and the mm-hmm. hindgut. So our eliminatory stuff, mm-hmm. as well as into, into the legs for the MSK structures. And then the sympathetics have to travel in through the uh, with the somatic nerves to the muscles and stuff of the lower limbs. So if we mm-hmm. have any motion restriction, there could be getting effects, not only on just the, the muscles and the, the sensory aspect that might be creating, um, uh, that sensation of the sciatica that we hear lots about, uh, but also from the fluid aspect of if the sympathetic nerves are getting kind of messed up, then he can't pull as much fluid back out of that leg just from yeah. uh, vasoconstriction, vasodilation. Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. in his upper body, he rotates so much more to the left side than the right side. So you have like this, the upper limbs are now almost trying to like pull fluid out of that, out of that right leg. So you see yeah. compensations coming up through, through different areas, depending on where the restriction is mechanically and like physiologically or not really yeah. like, I guess physiologically, but like through fluid, fluid dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where there's like, it, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to be drawn from somewhere. 
So mm-hmm. then you just see so much more, more motion. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's always an, an interesting thing is like, and, and, you know, if you were to remove that rotation, would that allow for better improvement in, in the lumbar spine and, and his sciatic symptoms, or would that, you know, further prevent his ability to, uh, to overcome that, that kind of a symptom mm-hmm. uh, or, or those, those mechanics. Mm-hmm. It's kind of and- a, and the, the principles still apply even to the, the athletes that we train is as soon as they lose that kind of pelvic stability and motion comes from that area, as opposed to the, to the coxspinal joints was a super common, uh, uh, with these young athletes who were sitting down a lot throughout yeah. the day. And then they train and then they sit down they train they're at school or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, a lot of their motion from seated, when you lock out the pelvis up into the DL, all that motion's got to come top down. Um, and it's got to come from somewhere, right. When you're rotating and stuff, yeah, it yeah. builds a lot of, uh, restriction into the coxfemoral joints so even so, just from so the, trying to optimize performance so they're they're like those those student athletes are they're getting a lot more action through their their like their ql and erectors in the in the like in yeah. rotation and side bending and stuff as opposed to it coming from the coxfemoral joint itself yeah just flexion and extension of the coxfemoral joint right it's all coming from side bend rotation um into the lumbar spine and it's an interesting piece, like mechanically speaking, like between the, like, if you're talking like in the coronal plane of side bending, you know, the, the QLs, uh, the adductors, and and then the abductors of the, of the hip, like it, if those are, if any one of those take over, then all of a sudden it throws everything out very quickly and mm-hmm. trying to restore that is, is, you know, a pretty tricky thing because it's, such a it's such a, a necessary motion that you you don't get a chance you don't get a break from mm-hmm. whether you're seated or standing um you know you're the, that that element of stability and shifting and swaying within your posture or if you're doing things like walking or exercising then it's even more so you know your body's just going to revert so so uh, you know so quickly to where its strengths are mm-hmm. um yeah trying to to make improvements upon those is, is you know better better done early if if you can that's such an, uh, a cool point um, because I was thinking about, so our central nervous system and our brain stem, so our cortical and subcortical areas are going to dictate motion based off of what it thinks is the safest, right? Yeah. And like you said, is, is going to be the positions at which it feels the strongest. So if I, mm-hmm. if I handed you a 45 pound weight in your arm, your bicep and like the, in the, the sense of a bicep curl, and I just told you to hold it, your bicep is going to set up in the strongest position that, it, that yeah. it feels comfortable with. It's not going to necessarily be where you personally think it should be it's going to be where the cerebellum and stuff thinks it is right so if i yes, have an athlete yeah. i have an athlete and i and i'm getting them to do deadlifts for the first time and i don't give them any cues i say i just want you to pick up that weight and they get in this funky funky position to try and pick up the weight it's because that's what their brain thinks is the safest way to do it yeah right? yeah for sure so i was, I was trying Based to think off like, of the strengths and strategies they have yeah exactly so i was trying to think of uh, as a trainer like how dare i say i know more than their nervous system to tell them, no, 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 this is actually a safer way to do it for you. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's, it's not that it's, it's safer the way I'm telling them to do it. We'll drop the weight. It's that we need to build, we need to create a stimulus to change the, this, uh, what your central nervous system thinks is a safer position. Yeah. It, it's a really good Yeah. 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 For sure. So yeah. That's always an, it's always an interesting piece of like, you know, the outside cues and, you know, causing, like causing or creating restrictions for the sake of symmetry, despite the fact that, you know, symmetry may be a greater 
generator of issues in, in somebody's body than than letting it do what it needs to do within the parameters that it already has access to mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah and and I, I think that's that's an incredible thing you know that that makes a big difference uh or that is a big difference between experienced and inexperienced um people within the fitness field is is looking at um and and playing with the the person's individual mechanics and understanding that factor because it, it informs it or it can inform so much mm-hmm. um about what you should do next or how you should approach uh how you should approach the you know those sorts of exercise be them hinging or squatting or yeah deadlifting or whatever it may be mm-hmm. kind of exercise or bench it, press rather it seems like the industry is getting better at not being so rigid in what they believe is right and wrong but yeah. I, I kind of, I don't like that. Like there's like these new guys who are like totally shit on all the old stuff because they think they, yeah. they're so smart and stuff, but it's like, that's just what they had then. Right. That's what they thought was right then. Just because it's different now. doesn't mean you gotta be an ass, but yeah. 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 There's a lot of, a lot of people forgetting about whose shoulders they stand on. Mm. Everybody thinking that they're the, the king shit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think uh, another interesting piece to this uh, uh, division as well is the, like you said, the visceral component. So the, yeah. the forces coming in need to be optimal, not just for movement of the musculoskeletal structures, but also of the, uh, the, uh, visceral structures. So we have, uh, tons of organs in that abdominal pelvic cavity, but let's just, even just for a limitory, um, system mm-hmm. we have, so we have the psoas on both sides where the ascending and descending colon kind of ride across. So if we have motion coming in on and off from the coxfemoral joints, it's almost like massaging those soft tissue structures to allow uh, stuff to move through. But if we lose that motion and then all of a sudden motion is coming more from our QLs and, and stuff like we were just talking about, then that could also affect yeah. visceral function. There was, a, there was a really interesting study that I had looked at. This was a while ago now. I don't think I'd be able to find it again. And I'm not sure if I saved it, but it was looking at just as a case case study, essentially, um, or as an example, um, they were looking at motion of the uh, of of the prostate gland in a bunch of different people, uh, a bunch of different men, different age age ranges, and all that sort of stuff. And um, they were sort of mapping, just for the sake of mapping, the motion the, or the 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 variety in the motion of different people's prostate glands based off of how they walked. Um, and they didn't do any sort of like what you would want them to do, like any sort of in-depth biomechanical analysis of like, you know, creating the link. It was more just saying like, this is what happens, you know, the pelvis, this guy's prostate can, it doesn't go past, you know, this point of, of, of midline. It only comes to the right and back, or it only goes up and to the left or, you know, like whatever, whichever example it was for, for the, um, the, the participant that they were, that they were studying, but it was just an example of that, you know, like mm-hmm. really interesting. And what does that mean then, you know, and, and if you were to, you know, put it onto the flip side of, of, a, you know, the female's uterus, like, what does that, that, what does that mean for its function, you know, and, and, and its uh, supply and, and drainage and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. uh, for, for the health of that organ or the health of that person. It's, yeah, it was really, uh, a, a, I mean, a blatant and, and obvious thing if you were to, to speak about it, but a lot of people don't consider those things. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Even if you do consider it, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. It's, that's so in, crazy in the fitness world. Like yeah. you can, yeah. Provide mobility as best you can and, and mm-hmm. create symmetry where you can in, in a safe way. But yeah. 
that's my, the, one of the most difficult things that I'm uh, dealing with myself right now is from the fitness side of it. It's very tough to get that local focal with movements and stuff. You're kind of, yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me, but li- I'm limited to only being able to fix global and local things. Yeah. And when you're, when you're correcting these like large things, you don't know if there's problems, you're creating problems in the focal stuff that you were just talking about, right? Like maybe yeah. the rotations looks a lot nicer globally, but it's all coming from the lumbar spine instead of the, the thoracic spine or one segment down or, or, or whatever. It's not going directly through thoracolumbar junction. It's so tough yeah. to really focalize that unless you have a limb in your hand and you have a hand underneath and you can feel exactly when that force comes into that segment or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting, you know, thing to consider because yeah, oftentimes when you do try to tweak things or or move things, like you're you're essentially tossing another ball at the body for it to juggle and and try to keep up and and uh, you know hope that you don't do too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as you're not doing bicep banded bicep curls on a Bosu ball, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> it's an outrageous exercise. That's a cool study that you brought up, though. You don't hear studies like that, uh, like visceral movement. That yeah. didn't talk about very, very much. Yeah. It was uh, really cool because the images that they had, like it was visualized like on, on a, on a screen, uh, like in a 3d. So you could see it from the front and then from the top mm-hmm. of, of like where, where and how it was moving. Um, it was, it was messy to look at, but you could see essentially the centralization of this, like of this point, uh, you know, as it was being drawn on, on the, on the graph, it's like, wow, that guy's, you know, there, that guy's prostate never leaves that bottom left quadrant of his of his uh, pelvis mm. um so it was kind of like they, they didn't even venture into what does that mean but it was just kind of a, a wild thing to to acknowledge that's so crazy i wonder yeah. how much variation there is between people like with organ movement like that probably just as much as the the msk variation right huge yeah yeah mm-hmm. and and i mean and and you know overlay that into any other organ be it the liver the stomach the you know the kidneys the the heart, like, you know, those are pretty significant structures that, that, you know, they're all significant, but, um, some will have a lot more immediate effect than others. And, mm-hmm. um, what those effects are, it's, you know, anyone's guess, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it's an important thing to, to, to acknowledge or recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, like there's so many organs there and they're all packed in between the respiratory diaphragm and then our, our, uh, pelvic floor, pelvic diaphragm. Yeah. And it's always interesting to see, uh, like the classic anterior pelvic tilt that everybody talks about, right? The lumbar spine's too extended, pelvis drops yeah. forward. What does that do to the like the tube of the body? Now the tube has like this almost curve through it. Yeah. So like the respiratory diaphragm, pelvic diaphragm work together to push fluid. They push air. Yeah. They they move organs, right? I've heard this getting talked about now in uh, sprinting athletes when they're propelling ah. themselves forward in, in acceleration, their, their pelvic um, diaphragm needs to push the, the organs. Like it's a, it's called levator ani. It literally elevates the, the viscera, pushes it forward to like make it airborne. Right. So that you can propel yourself faster. Like they're talking about this stuff now. And if it's almost like a piston, if they're not aligned, then you're, you're pushing yeah. it forward as opposed to vertically up and, and towards the, the sucking motion of the, the respiratory diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's always a, a, a wild thing, you know, to, to consider, because that was always something that, that I would try to like educate some of the, some of the athletes that we would train when, when we were at uh, NLPT was, you know, your rib cage and your pelvis being two cups, you know, upended facing each other. And as soon as you get into that, you know, too much extension or anterior tilt, then you're, you're not only are you disconnecting, 
the mechanics or, or the structural integrity of of the of the the body and and um, its muscles, but also then yeah, the effect of it on the viscera, your breathing within your exercise or in your performance, like mm-hmm. yeah, like it's interesting work. because it's it's too much to consider while you're you know while you're performing, of course, but when you're training, these are things that you can you can zone in on and and make changes to and or be conscious of uh, for the betterment and in performance, ideally. Mm-hmm. And, and the anatomy proves they're related. Like we, we talked before about the extra pyramidal and pyramidal tracks and, um, yeah. how they're responsible for posture, but also for respiration. So the, these mm-hmm. two things have yeah. to be coordinated, right. And the, the respiration comes from these diaphragms, not just the respiratory diaphragm, but also the, the, the uh, oral diaphragm, pelvic diaphragm, all these other diaphragms that move in this kind of vertical area and space. And I think the pelvic diaphragm is a cool thing we can talk about now as well. Because yeah. we have these, uh, so you have the Vader and I, Cacogeus that kind of are in within the bowl, but a mm-hmm. lot of the bowl as well comes from um, our lateral rotators that go out and actually attach in the coxofemoral joint. So how yeah. the the our hip bones, our, our, our femurs move within the acetabulum of the anonymous is going to affect the stability and how, like, like you said, how maybe how the prostate moves or, or how it glides or whatever. Like yeah. They create a large aspect of like kind of the anterior and posterior aspects of that bowl. Yeah, yeah, mm. and uh, and and then the sacrum being the re- the rest of it out the the back essentially it's all you know in the pure forms it's all this this huge sling that that it's creates uh, creates the the resting place for yeah for all of those organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because oftentimes you'll see like uh, internal rotation on one side, external rotation on the other, and then a slight shift in, in the anonymates themselves and, you know, an angulation of the sacrum or, or preference of motion for, for the sacrum in, in one, one direction or uh, through one pole and mm-hmm. trying to stabilize all of that is, you know, it's a lot to do all at once, but it all moves together. It's all coordinated in, in an intelligent way, like we were talking about earlier. So if you can just find whatever, wherever that linchpin is and, uh, and allow it, you know, to, to move a little bit more freely then all of a sudden everything else will get that opportunity as well, um, mm-hmm. to move collectively with, you know, be it the sacrum that you change or the anonymous or the, the, the coxifemoral joint, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Trying to find the, the driver of, of the issue that, that is the, the challenge because mm-hmm. um, each one of them are just as significant in, in that, that, that puzzle as the other. And all these yeah. forces get transmitted globally, right? So the issue might not be yeah. in the area, it might be in the foot, right? That now the force is coming off the ground or is affecting the knee, it's affecting the hip, and then now it's affecting the pelvic floor, it's affecting digestion, whatever. However, yeah, it kind of connects up. You got to kind of search for where where it's getting driven from. Yeah, yeah. It's uh there's um an interesting um uh I don't know what to call it, like website, uh and you know, a person uh instagram account that that i've been following and, and he's sort of classified or, or is you know challenging uh therapists and and um um anatomists and things like that to classify motion through um muscles that create or generate nutation versus counter mutation um and looking like trying to trying to use that lens as a way of of uh, classifying um groups of muscle by function and, and naming that as, you know, he sort of puts that as, as a, as a, as a, um, superior sort of tier of, of motion is the mutation counter mutation, um, and not just, you know, bilaterally, but unilaterally. So left to right as, as one side mutates, the other counter mutates in, in your gait cycle and all these sorts of things. And it's, it's a, it, I haven't really sat through it yet, but it's something that I really wanted to, to pick apart 
um, because it's just a, like, you know, a new way to, to look at things. But when we're talking about the pelvic floor and we're talking about like the coxofemoral joints or the inanimate motion, like all of that is kind of more or less steered centrally at, at, at the sacrum and, and anybody who's, you know, in a subscriber to the, the cranial sacral therapy would, would, you know, be on board with that, that, uh, that idea. Um, not to say that that's the only thing, but mm-hmm. it's a, it's an interesting sort of way to, you know, look at, look at mechanics and look at motion, um, that I haven't really explored yet, but I thought would be, you know, an interesting sort of, uh, exercise so, because there, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of significance in, in the mechanics outside of, you know, that the, the sacrum can kind of require the, of the anonymous or of the coxofemoral joint or the lumbar spine, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to get somebody to categorize what, what, what things are going to, uh, essentially pull the head backwards versus pull the head of the sacrum forwards. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and make no mistake, he's already done it. He, yeah, he, yeah. he wants you, to, he wants you to pay for his fun course <laughs> yeah, exactly. or, or his book or whatever it may be. But anyways, he, he puts out some, uh, uh yeah, we can share a link to that as well. Cause it, mm-hmm. he, he shares some, some really interesting, um, animations oh, of, cool. you know, what do, the, what do the erectors do or how do the erectors coordinate left to right? And what does that effect have on the, the, the lumbopelvic uh, mechanics? And uh, then, you know, as well with the, the erectors or the psoas. And, and it, it's kind of an interesting look at it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a nice, nice sort of, or it's a refreshing way to, to look at things because it's a little bit more integrated and mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, you know, just the breaking down, okay, well, what is the psoas doing? Or, okay, what is the glute doing? Like, you know, where it's so individualized, this, this is a little bit more of a, of, a, of an integrative sort of uh, view of things. I always appreciate appreciate when people go down deep, deep dives into what kind of one focal area It allows someone like a generalist to come in and get, get a really kind of deep look at what, what that is, and then reapply that to the whole body structure again. But I find the the people that do that will sometimes get caught up in every issue is a sacral issue, right? Like that. uh, I won't bring up the name, but this other person is, it's all about jaw. um, What was it? Jaw and feet. Every problem is yeah. coming from the jaw and the feet. It's like, well, unless it's not, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure There's you can a fix lot a lot between those two. That, that yeah. could be a, a trouble. Yeah. But then you, you go and look at their content and they have so much content on just the jaw. It's like, wow, there's like so much opportunity to learn just about this one structure, which is kind of like what we're yeah. trying to do here, right? We're picking kind of a division mm-hmm. and going, trying to just talk deep about it as yeah, deep as we yeah. can about it. I think that, you know, looking, looking to those people for their, their information and, and their, their views and, and their lens that they, they choose to, to look at the body, I think is so, so valuable um, because it, it, it just gives you essentially more ammunition to, to draw back and, and make those, make those connections to distal areas outside of that one specific spot, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and for, for whatever reason they've chosen, you know, the sacrum or the jaw or the foot or, over whatever it may be each each has its each has its uh its its value or significance which is kind of how still wrote about which is comical mm-hmm. just you know the most important place is always this or or, or yeah. you know you have to start at the at the the whatever it may be and it's the most vital organ and mm-hmm. these these sorts of uh statements yeah everything is most important like all these yeah. quotes that you can pull and it looks like that's that's what he cared most about but it was really about everything yeah yeah you live and die by the lymphatics and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he, I remember you said once he set it up in such a nice way that when you really, when you look at anything that is, is uh, mechanical in nature, but does a very good job of looking at the body mechanically, you're like, wow, that's osteopathy. 
because he said yeah. he set that up in such a, a wonderful way that it was all encompassing about anything mechanical and physiological. Like even when he talks about anatomy is the most important uh, thing, and then the next page in his uh, philosophy and mechanics book, he talks about what he means by anatomy. He means anatomy. He means physiology. He means histology. He means chemistry. He means biology. Right? He goes through that's anatomy is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of kind of funny. Because it's, it's hard to wrap your head around it because you have to wrap your head around all of it at the same time to make, yeah. make it useful or to make it, you know, uh, make it helpful, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's a hard piece, which is why it helps, you know, break it down, I guess. Mm-hmm. There was one more thing I wanted to ask you, because it's something I was thinking about with an athlete I had. So, um, for example, like when we were talking about, um, let's say I'm getting them to just walk over a hurdle. Mm-hmm. And I see instead of the cox femoral joint kind of picking, picking up and over that that uh, leg, the 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 pelvis tilts up, right? So we see a loss yeah. in motion there. Or um, um, for example, when when they're taking a, a shot, this would probably be a better yeah. example. When they're taking a hockey shot, and I and I drew a line between their pelvis and, and their upper upper T line. So let's say just shoulder girdle to shoulder girdle, and they kind of tilt to the side, and we mm-hmm. see that most of that tilts coming from the bottom, mm-hmm. as opposed to coming from the top. The so motion, like the split stance that they, they sort of assume to take the shot. Yeah. Then tilt their lower T line. And yeah. So we, we, we yeah. teach like we, we want to keep the baseline level and then the mm-hmm. upper, upper line can kind of tilt back and forth to create that force. But when you look mm-hmm. at the motion, the motion characteristics are the same, right? If I, if I move the pelvis up on the right, it's side bending, you know, the DL, mostly DL, some lumbar spine to the right. If I move the upper T line down on the, on the right, then it's also side bending to the right. So the motion preference is the same. But, yeah. but their ability to produce force is different. I was just trying to think right. through why that would be, right? So there, so for somebody that is able to keep their baseline or their, their, uh, like their pelvis level mm-hmm. they, and, and then move more of their upper T-line, they're able to produce more force? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to somebody who moves the upper T-line. And then, yeah. and then force gets produced, uh, or sorry, moves their lower T line and force gets produced that way. Right. Um, cause again, so, the motion preference is the same, but I was just yeah. trying to think, I guess you're losing again, that place of stability for the, 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 the upper, upper girdle to yeah. move from. Right. So now, now yeah. we're off yeah. axis. Now yeah. the feet have to adjust. The coxfemoral joints have to adjust, but it's just weird because, because for example, if I were to assess somebody on the table and they had a motion preference for that, mm-hmm. I don't know that I'd be able to tell the difference. Right. Until, unless yeah. I saw them at patient active to do, to do that motion where it's getting hiked up from the bottom or getting kind of pulled down from the top. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and, and it's kind of, cause I, this was one of the thoughts that I had when you were, when you were talking about that, like your body or a person's body, when you're seeing an athlete and they're tilting both, that's their, their body's, you know, natural ability and, and the speed at which you're asking them to complete that motion is probably relevant as well. And so their, their body's able to get that job done faster if they tilt both. Mm. Whereas if you change, you know, their strength profile, their coordination profile through, you know, certain training parameters, let's say where that now they're able to keep that base more stable, did the exercise or the, the execution may not be able to happen as fast, but maybe be able to happen with more force. Mm. And that, that idea of, of like the canoe and the, the cannon you know, if that base isn't stable, if, if then all of a sudden that's, you know, the cannon on solid ground, but if, the, if their lower base is, is tilting along with their, their tilt in their upper T line, then that's the canoe kind of scenario. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. That's that, that's kind of interesting because because as soon as you and and you can think about it too in, in like fascicle length and muscle uh, myofascial sort of lines as well if you're maintaining that base uh, here of, of stability of the lower the lower T line then more motion has to occur through the uh, like from the baseline to the the upper T line so then the the um, myofascial chains then have to engage a little bit more distance, a little bit more elasticity, and then have a little bit more force than that is executed through it, as opposed to, you know, that, that length and, and uh, elasticity being wound up through motion of the upper T line, and then some of it being lost through mm-hmm. compensatory motion of the, the lower, lower T line. Mm-hmm. That's a super um, interesting point. Yeah, I, I was yeah. thinking too. It's almost like an assessment tool. Like when you see somebody do yeah. that, the, the whatever place is moving, that's the place they're trying to generate force from. And whatever place is staying still, that's the place where they're trying to create stability from. Yeah, yeah. And and so is that is that a common problem with uh, with like the ho- like hockey athletes that that you that you see or you work with, like trying to yeah. gain that that point of stability in their in their pelvis. Yeah, I'd see it's a common problem with a lot of people. Uh, again, I don't have any crazy experience or anything, but even like the general population people I work with, like the people yeah. who come in with sciatica and issues like that, a lot of the time it's from them not being able to produce the stability, um, at least what, what, what I think there. And, and then they have motion restrictions in, in places that are supposed to move and then yeah. places that aren't supposed to move as much or moving too much. Yeah. And, and I suppose the inverse of that scenario is if they're not able to, like, you can look at it as either they're not able to maintain as much, like maintain stability, or they're not able to generate mobility in their thoracic spine above. Mm-hmm. So then that mobility has to come, it has to break or, or give in the, in like the lower T line or the pelvis. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder like, if you were able to, you know, liberate some of those restrictions in some way, shape or form above, perhaps then the stability factor may, may remedy itself. Yeah. If those mechanics align a little bit more cohesively, mm-hmm. you know, for that task. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. again, right. You find the place of restriction, you take away the restriction, find a fix it, leave it alone. Yeah. And the body yeah. will de- deal with the, the, the rest of the compensation on its own. It'll start to sort, sort through. Yeah. The new... I think it, I think it's cool too. that We, you, we could talk about how uh, those compensations are happening due to like uh, center of mass and uh, the body's trying to keep the eyes level and yeah, uh, right. trying to produce force. But you could also talk about how, if, again, if we have rigidity in the uh, thoracic spine, we still need to breathe. We still need to create space to breathe in air. Right. So maybe the lumbar spine has to move more to try and change that pressure to pull air into the lungs and to move mm-hmm. fluid and, and all that stuff. So it's, but it's a mix of both like that. The, the, it's just the next layer in of why, why that motion has to come from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's the jaw. Yeah. Maybe it's the jaw. Maybe it's the foot. Yeah. Maybe, they, maybe they're not getting <laughs> breathing too much, too much protraction or retraction. They're not eating enough steak. Nice chewy steak. Even <laughs> more steak. <clears throat> steak. Uh, All right, man. This is a lot of fun. A really interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. We should do this one again. Uh, is there anything else you want to add for that region? No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I look at it with all, with everybody that I work with in, in clinic. So it's, you know, it's something that is, is every single step you take, you're asking that, that area, the lumbopelvic uh, rhythm essentially to be engaged. And, and oftentimes it'll engage better on one side than the other. And if there's not, you know, a good enough balance between the two, then you're going to create issues or, or, or compensations elsewhere. Um, so that's always, you know, a, a, a focal point that I always try to hit with, uh, with patients that I see, um, to give them some, some more, some more opportunity essentially for movement and give their brain something else to work with. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. an interesting point just in, for ambulation is if, you, if I were to tick the points that are moving the least and then the points that yeah. are moving the most, right? The lumbopelvic junction kind of uh, within that area would probably be not moving very, very much within the three planes as opposed to, or, or at least especially L3, right? Um, yeah. As opposed to yeah. other areas, right? So it's a place of stability yeah. Yeah. to create force from. Yeah. From the ground right. and from the, from the arm swing. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat. All right, dude. So yeah. And and again, if anybody uh, has anything else they want to add or something uh, they think we got wrong or anything, don't hesitate to shoot us a message. We'd love to learn more about uh, where other people's thoughts would go in that region. Yeah. All right. We always get limited. Yeah. (laughs) Just the three three brains are three brains are better than two. Yeah, exactly. Especially our two brains. (laughs) (laughs) All right, dude. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or have a topic you'd like me and Stefan to tackle, you can find us on Instagram at whyitdependspodcast, email us at whyitdepends at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at www.thewhyitdependspodcast.com for detailed show notes with all the references and resources discussed in each and every episode. Do not hesitate to send us a message. We'd love to get to know you. Cheers and stay healthy.